Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Bruce Whitaker. Welcome, Bruce. Good, good morning. Good morning, VJ. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. And our featured reader today is Star Davis. She is a poet, playwright, and professional writer whose work has been featured in multiple literary magazines, such as The Rumpus, Cosmonauts Avenue, and Transition Magazine. Her monologues, poetry, and short stories have been awarded um, literary fellowships, such as the Brooklyn Poets Fellowship, um, Slice Literary Conference Fellowship, and the Eckerd College Scholarship. An MFA graduate from the City College of New York, her work has been performed at the Billy Holiday Theater, the CUNY Graduate Center, and New Regan's Poets Cafe. She currently lives in Bronx, New York. Welcome, Star. Thank you for having me, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so we're broadcasting from home due to COVID crisis, but uh, we're keeping going uh, every Monday at 8 a.m. But I just want to ask you, Star, to start us with the conversation, why don't you talk a little bit about where you were born and growing up, life growing up, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your life, and how your work uh, emerged out of this um, mm -hmm. life. Yeah. So um, I am originally from the Midwest. So I was born in Michigan, a very small town um, called Saginaw. It's about two hours from Detroit. Um, but I was raised in Columbus, Ohio, up in, um, um, around the age of five is when um, my mother and my two sisters, uh, when we moved um, to Columbus, um, so, you know, just like um, any Midwest millennial, which I feel I can freely group us together and say that <laughs> um, because the time, you know, whether you you had a lot or whether you didn't, I feel like it was a very uh, interesting time to, to be a child uh, in the 90s because, you know, there was you're coming fr from out of a drug epidemic. Um, which is interesting, much like an epidemic we're in right now. You know, um, it, um, it, it was unfortunate um, because a lot of uh, Black men particularly were being incarcerated around the time I was born, uh, between 91 and, and 96, um, with the Crime Bill Act that was passed. So growing up um, in Columbus, Ohio, and I want to say, in the Midwest in general looked like no one had a father. So um, when we did move to Columbus, my father was already in prison. Um, you know, and, and I can honestly say, uh, you know, he was there for a reason. He, he did rob a, a liquor store. Um, so he was in there for robbery. Um, but he was sentenced for 20 years for robbery. You know, so, you know, you got to go back and think, wow, you know, um, you have someone, you know, who, uh, you know, a, a white woman police officer who just shot, you know, this 20, you know, 26, 27 year old, you know, black student and was sentenced to 10 years. But my father had 20 years for just robbing a store, you know, didn't kill anybody, just robbed a store. So, um I was raised just by my mother and uh, my friends were raised by their mothers. And I didn't actually uh, ever witness a male presence in anyone's life 
I want to say until I was about 11 or 12, uh, because at that time, my mother had moved us out of a rough neighborhood and we moved to, you know, the suburbs, which was like, you know, utopia. Um, and from there, you know, I'm going to school with mostly Caucasian kids, which actually shocked the hell out of me because I'm, I was raised in um, uh, urban community. I had never really been around Caucasians uh, when I was around uh, 11 or 12. That was my first time. And it was a cultural shock, even though we were about five minutes up the road. Um, but we had never went five minutes up the road, um, except to go see Christmas lights and uh, maybe to shop at a nice store, but not to live. So um, that was my first time seeing people with like an actual father in their house or a father come up to the school. And I've thought, what is this, you know? Um, and, and, and that's kind of, uh, what started my uh, inspiration, I would say, for uh, for writing um, around the time I was in the fifth grade, my mind was just doing cartwheels consistently because I was seeing the division between the world I had come out of and the world I was in living in a certain area in Columbus. Um, and uh, Columbus being the capital of Ohio, uh, even till this day, I can honestly say it's still a very uh, divided city. So you just have these parts that are completely urban um, and dangerous, but then you can go about five minutes around the corner and you're, it's not that way. So it was very confusing to live there as a child and not know, oh, okay, I'm wanted five minutes down the street, but I'm not necessarily wanted in this greener part of town. So uh, where, where do I go? Where do I really fit or where am I most comfortable or where do I feel most safe? Um, so, um, at the time there was a, a dare competition in uh, my fifth grade class. I was already living in the suburb uh, by then and that suburb was called Gehanna. Um, I wrote an essay about my mother being on drugs. I wrote an, a really um, powerful lyric essay about uh, witnessing her struggling uh, through uh, getting off of a, a, a narcotic. Um, when I wrote it, my teacher, an older white woman named Mrs. Real, she actually took me into the teacher's lounge and she, her whole face was entirely red. And again, I had never been around Caucasians. So I'm thinking, what the heck? Why is her face looking like tomato juice? You know, I was kind of freaking out. Um, and I just remember my heart was pounding because I was terrified for her. I didn't know what the, the discoloration. Um, so when she told me, you know, is this true? You know, she's just asking me about the essay. And I'm just like, well, yeah. Um, and she says, well, this is the most powerful thing I've read, but I don't think we can submit it because this is about your mother and we don't want you to get in trouble. And she says, so I think I got to call your mom, but I'm scared to have this conversation. 
with her because this essay is very raw, you know, and so she gives the essay to the principal and the principal calls my mother. And I remember that call because my mother was on speakerphone and um, my mother said, well, is it good? <laughs> and the principal says, it's, it's good. Yeah. And my mom says, well, that's all right. If it's good, then that's all right. And I just remember that being the first time feeling allowed to tell the truth and to be myself. And from there, I knew I was going to be um, a writer because I was a kid and I had really touched somebody by just being who I was and saying what I knew. And wow, just what power, you know, and that still gives me goosebumps till this day because I don't think a lot of writers or, you know, people who do art um, at a young age feel that type of surge to be that bold right, right away. But my mother almost gave me permission to, um, to, to be who I was. And she gave me permission to share out like our story. And I don't know if she knows this, but it wasn't just ours to tell. And it, it was so many others to tell. Um, there were so many other kids in our community whose mothers were on drugs before. And we had been raised in a, a homeless shelter before we actually got our apartment in Columbus, Ohio. So I had already seen things and she knows the trauma and I'm sure she knew we had saw and witnessed things and, and to be a fifth grader and for her to be on the phone with my principal that day and go, Hey, it's good. I don't care. You know, that was enough for me to go. Okay. My mother approves of me truth telling. She approves of me speaking, you know, this way. Um, I can do anything from here. So from there, yeah. Was off and running. Good. Mm. Wow! I, in many ways, you're fortunate to have the that uh, parental support, especially in something that involved her so closely. And mm. um, a lot of a lot of students and young writers, adult writers, don't have that kind of permission that you've gotten. So that's an amazing story. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's a good memory to go back to. So growing mm -hmm. up, uh, what were you reading and how did that influence your writing? Like, how did you learn the craft? Um, so um, growing up, uh, I, I want to say my early recognition of, of reading uh, had to start from just being in church. Um, I just remember the Bible being um, like it sounded like it was written in another language um, because there wasn't those... Uh, other translations, you know, it was just the King James version and thou shall, and you're just reading it like, what is this? Um, and uh, so I think that was my earliest recognition of, um, of being inspired, um, actually, because I think that um, I looked at the Bible in a way of, okay, I don't understand this book yet but I have to understand it um, because again, I, I'm just a, I'm a little black girl in, in a Baptist church, you know, that's what you do. You, 
you read scriptures and you sing hymns. So um, I, I remember just opening up the Bible, forcing myself, um, forcing myself to understand it. Um, and I remember the first book I, I understood in the Bible uh, was Psalms, which um, as a child, I just thought it was uh, little poems. I didn't really see the the scripture in that book. <laughs> uh, I just remember going, this, I understand these. I understand David's prayers and his praises. Like, I get this. I get what he's saying here. Um, and, and that was uh, my favorite book. And that was my favorite book to read. That was the only um, part of the Bible that I understood. And I thought that um, he was conflicted. He sounded, some of those Psalms just sounded um, like real help me prayers. And again, growing up in an urban community, I guess I felt as if I could understand someone who was being persecuted, crying out to a higher power, like crying out to God for help, you know, so that actually became the start of my spiritual journey and literature journey. I was always looking for a book that spoke to me and um, that made me feel something. Uh, I, I didn't read books to really learn. I read books to feel. I was always looking for someone who was uh, just uh, perplexed. Uh, I was looking for a complicated uh, books, complicated uh, characters, but I didn't have the access to such stories. Um, the only books that um, I had or that my mother would get for me were those, you know, janky Baby Scissors Clubs um, series. And I just remember being like, oh, these are like, like, mom, I don't want to read these, you know. And <laughs> I remember, um, <clears throat> The worst thing she could have did was get me a library card because the day she got me a library card, um, I went right to the adult section and um, <laughs> I started reading these really hot and steamy romance novels and, <laughs> and, and all of that other stuff just flew out the window. But um, I know I eventually, uh, I mean, I stayed in the adult section. I, I actually never uh, really threw myself into the teen novels or the kid books. I wanted, I could really comprehend an adult fiction book around like 12, you know, 11 or 12, right around my, when my mom got me a library card. I never read a I never checked out a, a kid's book and she never looked to see what I was checking out. So she was just fascinated that I liked being at the library, but she didn't know I was in there reading adult situations. And, and I was trying to uh, be steps ahead of, well, I was steps ahead of everybody else. I mean, uh, by then uh, writing, meant more to me than just um, what I was doing in school. I was actually like, I was trying to find uh, that voice, much like the one in the Bible that 
I was looking to write in a way that also cried out. I wanted somebody to, I wanted that reaction again from the fifth grade. I'm just a child. So I'm looking to make someone react. And I wanted someone to feel something when I wrote it down. So I felt like sex or, or violence or, or something in an adult book it had that. And I didn't think they had it in a, in a child book. So I, I didn't want to read those. I grew up very early, as you can see. <laughs> would, 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 you mind, would you mind reading us something that, uh, that you've written and uh, sharing some of uh, now what, what, what came out of all that library reading? <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. Oh, God. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's see. Um, because, you know, um, po there's poetry and, um, you know, I, I have dabbled, um, now in, uh, essay, essay writing, and also I did write a play. So let's see. How about a poem or something like that? That would be. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That'd be great. Absolutely. So, um, this is a poem, um that um, I just uh, recently had published uh, as a contest winner for the Columbia Journal. Um, it's very uh, important to me because um, I wrote this poem years ago and I kept trying to edit it and edit and edit to see if it would ever publish and never did until now. So it's weird that, you know, here it is online. <laughs> so um, this is a poem about um, uh, an instance from my childhood um, when my sister um, was pregnant for the first time. So this poem is called 86 Days. <clears throat> my sister climbed into bed with me. Her body is full of milk and water and a baby inside her stomach that she doesn't want. She is 17 and I am 14. And baby is 86 days of fluid and fantasy. Next to me, her breasts are soggy with milk that we won't drink tomorrow. She tells me how she can't wait for the moon to die. The next day she gives me the ultrasound photo. It's the only picture of God that I own. What did they do with the baby? Did they toss it out into the sea? The milk inside her breast hardens to sand. I want to cut her open just to make a castle. My sister climbed into bed with me. We both dream we are on the beach with dead fish washing up on the shore. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Beautiful images. I really oh my God, that's yeah. so powerful. Yeah. It's interesting you talk about wanting to have an effect on audiences. And, and when I've taught writing before, it's often fairly far along that writers start turning from simply expressing themselves to elicit, trying to play the audience as it were, instead of just their own words or their own thoughts. Yeah, um, very interesting. 
that's a that to me and that to me is a very important professional turn for a writer to uh, to it, it moves you from the uh, sort of pleading and crying out and so forth to a real craftsperson. Oh. And was it from your essay experience when you were a child that you saw that power and, and understood that right away? Or how did that, how did your sense of craft evolve as you, and how, an, thinking about how an audience responds to your work? So um, there was something that I learned early that I think is very dangerous and um, I, I see this a lot in essay writing when I help, I um, also volunteer, I help high schoolers um, write their college essays, um, particularly high school African-American female students. Um, it's a part of a nonprofit organization called Seeds of Fortune. And um, I, love, I love talking about this stuff because it doesn't ever get said. So what I learned early that was dangerous was that there is a way to play on someone's emotions in your writing um, and you don't have to tell the truth at all to do that. Um, and as an African-American, uh, when I wrote that essay, one thing that I couldn't um, understand but that I understood later was why was a story about my mother being on drugs uh, causing a, a a white person to cry like i didn't i wasn't crying my mother wasn't crying you see we weren't bothered by this story we were this was just a story um but but there was an emotion that i was getting from my 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 teachers and i didn't understand the emotion and later I did understand, later I understood that there was this guilt, you know, here's this little black girl, oh, her mom, you know, was on crack and she had to witness her, you know, vomiting and, and coming down from this, you know, horrid thing and, and she doesn't have her dad around and, you know, she's, she's trying to, you know, break past this barrier and, oh, you know, our hearts just go to her. And, and I, I started to understand, like, uh, do you feel bad? You, they feel bad for me, you know? <laughs> and when I figured out that somebody felt bad for me, um, I also learned that they started treating me different. So mm -hmm. now they were asking me if I had money for lunch. They were mm -hmm. asking me if I needed anything. Even when I did have money for lunch, I would say no. You know, so I I started kind of playing this role where I'm like, oh, they feel bad. You know, that's cool. You know, OK, you know, because I don't feel anything. Um, and I think uh, that was dangerous to learn. It was dangerous because, um, again, when I became a teenager, all I did was know how to manipulate things in my writing. And I lost sight of the power of truth telling. I came back to that in, in college, but in high school, I mean, you know, I'm just a teenager. I'm reckless by then, um, you know, and, and by then I had learned some really harsh truths about life and about writing. So my craft, I kept winning these contests. I kept winning writing contests all throughout middle school, all throughout high school. 
but none of it was true. I started uh, learning how, well, okay, my mom's not just going to be on drugs this time. I'm about to make I'm about to make something else happen and, and see how people feel about that, you know? And I started kind of going, well, who would know? Who would know if what I'm writing is fiction or nonfiction? No one would know the difference. Um, and uh, I had a terrible professor at City College. I'm not going to say he's terrible, but he actually applauded my theory. He said, Star, you are absolutely right who does know? So why label ourselves as fiction or nonfiction? Like, why do it? You know, like, nope, no one's going to go fact check your life. And I said, hey, you know, I, I know, but I do like the label now because it helps me stay in the right lane of thinking. And he's like, but it's also important to know it's your story. And if you want to fabricate it, you can. But, um, my craft came from uh, realizing that there was a guilt that that came with people reading my work. And it also, my craft also came from realizing that through essay writing, it's not like poetry, like essay writing, you are able to provoke a, a point of interest and you're able to make someone understand that point and whether they like it or not, they just read it. So there was a lingering factor that I liked about writing an essay. And there was a, um, a picture quality about poetry that I started to love um, about writing poetry, which were just two distinctive worlds for me. So on one hand, when I began writing poetry, it was only because I liked painting a picture. I liked to show something. Um, but if I wanted to say something, I felt like I needed to say it in a longer, um, narrative and, and no one actually taught me that. I think that that was birthed from having journals, having diaries and having this, a uh, sense that prose was more powerful to tell the truth than a poem was. I felt in a poem, much like the Bible or much like a scripture, there's a, a lasting impact in the punch of a line more than it is in like something more narrative. So I wanted my poems to actually look like scripture or I wanted it to feel like Bible. And I wanted my essay to feel like I'm, I'm, I'm making a, I'm, I'm telling you something. I'm, I'm trying to get a point across and I want you to understand this point. So that's kind of how I started dividing up myself. So tell us a little bit about your experience in the MFA and uh, what were the, for listeners, what were the pros and cons? Did you learn a lot or did you feel it was, uh, what were your feelings about it? Yeah. Oh, I loved MFA. Um, I think it's the most um, important pointless degree there is to get. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I say it's important because I think if you're, um, I think if you're a writer and you're not really sure what the hell you're doing, like, I really did not know what I was doing by this time. I mean, when I graduated with my bachelor's, I knew that writing was important, but I was trying to understand, is it important enough to work? 
as a writer or is it important enough to just remain a, cre a creative and go and get a normal job and balance the life of a creative and a person with a normal job? When you get your bachelor's in something like journalism, which I did, you try to work in the field. And I think that that kind of deteriorates your creative. Uh, so I started uh, working in journalism and I hated it. I hated it because I couldn't tell a story. I couldn't be creative as I wanted. There was blocks. Uh, there were rules in journalism that I didn't that I didn't like, but I knew how to break them. So when I got my MFA, I actually quit working for a magazine at the time. And I just knew, okay, I'm gonna get my MFA and I'm gonna rebirth, I'm gonna birth this, this creative that I know I am and I'm gonna find my niche because I didn't have one. Um, I had always been writing poetry. I had been writing essays all my life. I had been writing articles for my college newspaper, now for this magazine I was interning for. But that like, but to me, I wasn't talking about anything. Nothing had a, a reoccurring theme. Uh, nothing felt powerful. Nothing felt authentic. I didn't know where I was going. The MFA literally took me and said, okay, it's all right. You don't know where you're going. You're going to figure it out. And um, that's the importance I think it was for me. I, I got to take those classes fiction writing, uh, nonfiction writing, uh, you know, uh, essay writing, uh, play writing. I I'm taking all of these cool classes and I'm figuring out, okay, I know how to do all three of these and that's okay. So um, it really kind of, it, it took me from being confused about my work to being um, narrow-minded narrow about it, and, and which is cool, because it said you could be a poet, you can be a journalist, you can be an essayist, you can be a novelist, you can be a short story writer, all at the same time, and you're not crazy. And I was like, finally, you know, and, um, uh, the pointless part is that I already knew that, but um, I I didn't have the confidence. Uh, I just really didn't. I think the MFA is important to someone who doesn't know what the hell they're doing, but needs to be reminded that they do know what they're doing and that there is a space for that, there's a space for that whimsical value. Um, I don't like that word whimsical that much, but I think it's okay to say that as a writer, we can be whimsical. We can kind of go, oh, I wanna do this, I wanna do that. And we can be very unsure of, of our work, where it's going, what we're doing. Um, but I think that's like what makes a writer a writer or an artist, an artist, I don't think you're really supposed to um, ever know. So the MFA directed me 
to be exactly who I was going to be. It pushed me to understand my voice and to know, okay, Star, you know, you're writing about some horrid things. And um, that's okay too. But, you know, um, how are you writing about these things? Uh, what does each form mean to you? At the time, I didn't know what an essay meant to me. I didn't know what a poem meant to me. I didn't know what the form meant. I knew what I had always tried to mimic, but I didn't know what it meant to me. So the MFA was a mind fuck. It made me try to figure out why an essay? Why not tell this story in a story or a poem? It, it made me, it forced me to use every form to figure out, am I saying this correctly? And um, it was tedious work, um, but I really needed that MFA experience. The prose was, it shaped me as a writer. It gave me the confidence. The cons were, I had all of that already. Um, a good mentor actually would have <laughs> established that in me. Um, but I didn't have one and, um, or, or even a good literature mentor, meaning if I got into reading Toni Morrison early, if I got into reading more Nikki Giovanni, uh, more Sonia Sanchez, if I got into reading more Maggie Nelson, if I kind of knew who these women writers were, if I kind of knew who those muses were early on, I might have picked up on, on, on the power of that just by reading. But I, I went to study my MFA to be forced to read. So there. <laughs> There's, there's my secret. <laughs> I forced <Yeah>. myself. <laughs> I, think, I think you echo a lot of people's experiences from the MFA. And I think it's become almost a, uh, a gatekeeping degree yeah. um, that people, I know in theater, it definitely has become one. Um, yeah. That the, the quality of the design, acting, writing, directing is all coming from people who've been through the MFA programs and they've really yeah. been grounded in their craft and have picked up a tradition and are reacting to things. Um, it can be formulaic. <laughs> it can also, a lot of people are hurt by MFA programs or feel it takes time to get out of, uh, out from under the, the contradictory feedback they might have received and so on. But yeah. Um, but they are a, a moment where um, you can really focus on craft and, and discover things. Do you think that uh, writing uh, in this way can be taught? Or as you say, you brought everything to the program. Mm -hmm. um, if someone wasn't as vested and deeply driven as you were, uh, would the MFA, what would the MFA program offer them, do you think? I have a lot of friends who are in that, who were in that boat. And which again shocked me because I, I guess I kind of thought we were all there because we were writers already. And when I realized, oh, I'm sitting next to somebody who's never written a poem, they're here to learn how to write one. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> um, I, I learned that um, 
there's a save there they're look they were really looking uh to be birthed and to also like to be saved in the mfa and i and i actually felt for them because i knew that uh, any degree or any type of education doesn't isn't really going to uh, isn't really going to save you. Um, and I think that's like a failing quality of the MFA program. There's a cushion there that they give you, um, even if you're not that good, to to still keep going. And um, I'm not going to say that's wrong, but what I'm going to say is I feel like there are some folks who um, are very, uh, you know, you know, a line, meaning like just very uh, black, just a person that sees things in black and white. And then there's and then there's people who see things in living color. Um, I can't tell someone who is afraid to um because you know I think writing is about not being afraid so I it was hard for me to tell someone who was afraid to share their life or afraid to really be vulnerable on the page it was hard for me to tell them you're you know this is good or you know and it was hard and it was hard to um be in a class with folks like that and read their reactions and know that I was possibly hurting someone due to my my critique. Um, and, and it was hard and it was definitely hard when I, I realized that um, not everyone was there for the same reasons that I was. So what I, what I think um, people need to understand before you go and get an MFA, you there really needs to be a level of consciousness to um, what you're actually going to study as a writer. Um, and there has to be an identity that you are a writer. If you don't already carry that identity, an MFA is not going to just magically lay it on you like a blanket. Um, and, and, and an MFA is there for a crap for a, a, a person who writes but is, is looking to be sharpened. Uh, I believe an MFA is for a person who is uh, already there, already um, that person that's writing stories on the back of a receipt paper and, and they're just looking uh, uh, for that the feedback, they're looking uh, to be amongst a community of people that are also are also trying to master their craft, like there's a reason why it's a it's a master's of fine arts. You know, the, the, you have to have scratched the surface somehow. You know, before going into such a prestigious degree. I mean, it really is prestigious. Um, when when employers see I have an MFA, they're very very interested. Well. Do, do you have a book? Like they're thinking that I'm just, I've been on Oprah. They, they think that I've uh, uh, already accomplished this creative's life. Um, people are, are very intrigued by those who have an MFA degree and it does you an injustice to have one and, and to still not have, um, not have craft, not have vulnerability, not be able to take criticism. Um, 
And I, I think it's a waste of time. I've seen people drop the MFA program because they realize that. And I also see people who never dropped because uh, they're not people who drop things and they're, they're people who just have to get it. Um, but I see those people also not get published and not really get anywhere um, and still have to go through years of being fine tuned and, and molded into being um, this writer. It's almost just like uh, surgery, you know, um, you know, these, it's these people who just really want to tell their story. They want to be vulnerable. They want to move people. They want to write that award-winning play or that award-winning book. And, and, and that's their dream. And it's not going to be something that they let go of easily. And I, I feel for, I feel for those folks because, um, they're also, um, folks that are looking for a formula and I've, um, been fortunate enough to never look for one. Um, mm. So I think someone who's in search of that formula to uh, get rich quick off of a, a, their a piece of writing are, are going to be people that um, that probably will write a very fabulous ebook, but um, are probably people that aren't ever going to really um, be remembered. So, yeah, the MFA could be misleading in that, in that route. And I'm glad I didn't stay longer than, than I had to, um, you know, again, I think as a, as a, as a master's degree, you got to know you're spending money and you shouldn't be wasting your time. It, it should be something that you research well. The program should be a program you research well and, if you're going to do like an NYU or a new school or um, a Hunter's College, Hunter's College has a great MFA. I remember um, I got into Columbia's MFA program. I did not take Columbia's. Um, I did not take that um, that opportunity. It was to me, it was too much money, one and two. I don't feel I was there as a writer to go to Columbia's MFA program, I felt like I'm more of the city college MFA because I felt here I am a girl, I'm just moving to New York, coming from the Midwest. And I don't know, I haven't, I haven't accomplished anything in my writing. Uh, I'm starting out, I'm emerging. Um, I'm not confident. I, I want to go somewhere where there's other rebels and, and people from just humble beginnings like me that also can't afford Columbia. I want to be around gritty writers, you know, who who were looking for an affordable program and who are probably going to offer me excellent, raw, unfiltered advice that I could understand without the big vocabulary. Like I wanted something like that. Um, but that's that just like such that's great advice because I think you kind people tend to kind of go for the best program they can get into, whether it's really a good fit for them or not. But absolutely. I wanted to turn a question to right now in, in we're in the middle of COVID, obviously, and, and uh, maybe in the early stages of what will be a years long sequence of adjustments. 
but where are you finding comfort right now? You, I understand you're not really writing too much right now, but are you discovering new writers? Are you going back to old favorites or what, uh, what's on your bookshelf? What's on your nightstand right now that you're reading? Oh God. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I'm actually um, reading some fiction, which um, I'll tell you guys. Nonfiction is a love of mine. I love reading real things. There's nothing like a real story. That's so important. Um, when I started writing, I, I started working on a collection of essays last year called Hustle. And um, the book of essays is literally about the story that I just told you all um, at the start of this, which is these essays are about my childhood. They're about growing up in Ohio. Um, it's about the redlining situation. Um, it's about um, the relationships I've had with black men who've been wrongly accused of crimes who I've seen go to jail. It's about writing those men in jail. It's about growing up with a single mother who was also a recovering addict. It, it was, it, it's some really, powerful, gut-wrenching essays that are literally coming from the inside of me. And I, I started reading lots of James Baldwin. I started reading a lot of his short stories. I started reading a lot of Toni Morrison last year. I was just reading nonfiction back-to-back um, -back last year. I ended up in therapy because... Um, uh, well, life was just happening. And um, I had lost a few friends uh, to gun violence. And my therapist goes, well, what are you reading? And I, I tell her that I was reading memoirs. I was reading uh, Keith, Lamont, Keith Lamont's memoir, Heavy. And that book is heavy. And it's probably the most painful memoir I've ever read in my life. It, it's brilliant please like Keith, if you're listening, this is, that's a brilliant book. Um, but it was, it was painful. And I tell her, I'm reading this book. I'm reading this memoir by this black man. It's called heavy. And I tell her I was reading, um, Toni Morrison's essays. And she says, you're reading a lot of heavy stuff. Like, I don't think that's helping your emotional state. And I said, well, I never really thought about it like that. And she says, I, I think you should remember that when you read, it's like food. So, you know, if you kind of have too much of something, it can start to affect you, you know? And she says, and I think you're, you're suffering with some, losing some people, you're suffering with some things that are happening in the news. And now you're reading about more pain, more painful things. And, and, and then you've had a painful life. So she said, I don't, I just don't think that's healthy. So right now to take my therapist advice, I said in 2020, I was going to read more, more uh, pointless fiction. So I'm reading this book now called Queen of the South, which is based off of the TV show. Um, and, um, you know, it, it is by, you know, uh, a Mexican woman who's, you know, um, 
who's running the drug cartel. So, I mean, it, it's juicy, but you know, it, it's fiction and <laughs> it's funny. And it's also, um, uh, it's just another world. It's not my world. And I think I needed a step out of my world to kind of give myself a mental breather. Um, my world as a black woman can just get, the, it's, it's repetitive. Someone died today, again. Someone mm. was shot again, again. Um, and then you go to read a book by an African-American. Someone's shot, someone's grieving, someone's, you know, treated unfairly. And you just keep getting the reoccurrence of, of these. You get You keep getting this reminder that you're not, you're, you're not wanted, you're fighting, you're not done, you're not doing enough, you're not enough. And, you know, it, it did, it does affect you. It did affect me. And I'm, I'm brave enough to, to admit that as a black person, I, I, I have to, I have to um, balance myself in literature waters. Um, it, I told a friend of mine, Kate's Messenger, um, I told her that um, I wish I had the privilege sometimes and the luxury of being a person who could write about love and write about fantasy. But I feel like I don't have that luxury because I feel like there's a burden on my chest to write about what's happening in my community because if i don't the world will never change so i i feel like i don't get to write the love poem i feel like i don't get to write the fantasy novel i i don't you know i i don't get to to dive into tolkien or or or, or any of those dense pieces of of fascinating literature because I have to report on something that people been reporting on over and over again, but it just seems no one's, we're still barely cracking through a surface and the world is still not changed. And because of that, I can't write those things yet. Mm. So um, I, I try to relieve myself of that burden as best as I can by by reading by reading some fiction when I can, um, and it's I'm forcing myself to to do it, but it it's it's been helpful. And I've also um, been reading um, some poetry. Um, I I love uh, reading older poetry, so I'm reading some Harriet Mullen. Um, I'm reading some. Um, Audre Lorde, and I'm reading some uh, Gustavo Ferment poems, which are bilingual, but, and I don't know much Spanish, but he does it on purpose, and I just like how he does it. I like that in his collection, he doesn't care if he's writing in Spanish and he's not keeping track between Spanish and English. Um, and he, like, I just like that he's like just being, you know, he, he does it, he's doing something purposeful. He's saying, hey, 
I listen, I'm I this is my tongue and you're going to get what I'm saying in whatever tongue it comes out in. And so there's a surprise on every page in this collection. And uh, I like his bolt. I like the boldness. So, um, yeah, trying to dive into some other people's worlds. Trying to step out of mine. So yeah. as a reminder, listeners, uh, thank you so much for that. But as a reminder, listeners, this is the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, we air every Monday at 8 a.m. Uh, you know, Radio Free Brooklyn is a listener-sponsored um, um, community-based radio. So we appreciate it if you can uh, donate to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash uh, RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. And also I have an announcement. Uh, friends, COVID-19 is... Uh, disrupting all our lives and uh, right now Radio for Brooklyn is no exception. We want you to know that we have made every effort to ensure the health and well-being of our host staff and community at large. We've closed both our studios and canceled live events, but our hosts are still doing their best to continue to bring new original programming by broadcasting live from home and pre-recording their show from their home studios and by selecting their best pre-records for their past shows. With most of our revenue stream evaporated, we need your help. We realize that you may be hurting too, but if you can afford a small donation, it would go a long way towards helping us stay on the air. There are many ways you can help. First, you can, as I mentioned, radiofrequent.org slash donate, or you can go to, uh, you can text, use your phone to text RFB give five. That's the number five, four, four, three, two, one. So to text it to four, four, three, two, one. It only takes a, a moment, but you'll be able to use your digital wallet for your donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, you can go to amazon.com slash smile and register Radio Free Brooklyn as your um, nonprofit you wish to support. Um, also, if you're listening on your computer, you can free yourself up by downloading the app on your iPhone or Android. Um, so now, the themes of the show um, have a lot to do with the personal's political and, you know, kind of manifesting or finding our truth so we can be empowered. So, Star, I'd like to ask you, what are your reflections on those terms? I mean, this is what we've been talking about. But for the bring it home for the listener as we start to go out, we only have about six more minutes left. So as in our final thoughts on the thematics of the show being that the personal is political and how you interpret that and um, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, personal versus political. Um, I, I believe that... Um, that can be taken two ways. One way, I believe that uh, what really matters to us begins to form our political self, um, you know, uh, our communities, um, the people around us, uh, the the issue, the reoccurring issues that, that we seem to face within community, uh, within our lives. Um, again, mine just being uh, social injustice, uh, ra- racism uh, within community, uh, within society, um, you know, that that has formed my political self, uh, whether I, I know it or not. Um, you know, when, when I'm attuning to uh, the news, when I'm attuning to things there, that's my that's my personal that's my personal uh, filter. Um, but but then I also believe that uh, the personal verse political can can mean um, our own objectives, meaning um, 
whatever whatever you're uh you're you're allowing whether that's bodily whether that's spiritually that is also uh creating a political uh a political stance um political preference for you um so i think it's important um for people to uh practice truth telling uh to to also journal and get uh, a political a political body, especially for the times that we're living in right now, um, whether you're channeling that through your art or not, um, everything is political happening around us right now. There is nothing off the table that's not political. My body right now is political, you know, my body parts are political right now. So there, I mean, if you don't have a, a political view or, or standpoint, uh, yeah, you're not you're not helping the world be a better place. You're not uh, helping uh, uh, world changers change the world. You're not you're not helping uh, craft the society to be uh, more legitimate for your children or the future uh, ahead of us. So. Um, yeah, knowledge is power. It's important to read, uh, watch the news, no matter how much of a clown show it is sometimes. It's important to understand the narrative. There's a lot of storytelling in news. I learned that from being a journalist. So it's still important to watch because whether it's lies, whether it's manipulative, catch the story, get the stories. There's still factual information inside um, and there's still a lot of, uh, of things going on. And I, I hope that more people, uh, vote, more people get out and, and really try to, um, help out the community, especially during this time of COVID. We, we don't have to sit home and do nothing. We can be talking, we can be, um, informing, we can be helping. Thank you. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Thank Bruce, any you. last thoughts? Oh, no, I, I really enjoyed this. This oh, was a, a refreshing morning chat. Thank you, thank you. Indeed, yes. <laughs> right, you guys got me all stirred up now. Now, right, now I'll, I'll have to write something. So I see what you guys did here. <laughs> oh, can't wait to see that. It's been delightful talking to you, Star. Good luck with all the uh, work you're going to do. And congratulations on winning the uh, Columbia Contest competition it's a lovely poem it was lovely to hear you read it thank you thank you thank so you, much yeah. thank you, so my listeners, uh, it's, if you're listening to the rebroadcast this friday at 7 p.m um may 29 2020 we're going to be doing a special airing so definitely tune into that um and thank you so much we have about 30 more seconds so i uh, just want to thank everyone for listening for co-creating a powerful listening experience and thank you so much for sharing your story star and for uh, you know being present and being uh, very open with us, thank you. It's, this is part of the the practice, you know, to you know to bring out our stories and make make let them be heard. Yeah, thank absolutely. You. Thank you. Thank you for the space. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much to everyone, Bruce. Uh, thank you. And thank you, VJ, and everybody have a great week.